Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Robin O'Neill, taped before a live audience at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The Modern is showing a 20-year survey of O'Neill's work titled Robin O'Neill, We the Masses. The exhibition spotlights O'Neill's signature works of graphite on paper, many of which are multi-paneled. O'Neill's drawings have long addressed the landscape tradition and issues related to climate change, the human presence within nature, human struggles within nature, and the tenuousness and temporality of beauty. The exhibition was curated by Allison Hurst and will be on view through February 9th, 2020. Among the museums that have presented solo shows of O'Neill's work are the Des Moines Art Center and the Contemporary Art Museum Houston. Her work is in many major museum collections, including the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Dallas Museum of Art, the Blanton, the MFA Houston, and of course, the Modern. Before we get to this week's show, please, please, please help us out by filling out our biennial survey. We only do this once every two years, and we really need it to continue to bring you the program and to bring it to you for free. It's at manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. That's manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. We're about halfway to the number of responses we need to reach statistical significance. If you haven't filled out the survey yet, please do. Robin O'Neill at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, after the break. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty, the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents An Impressionist Autumn, a pair of extraordinary exhibitions that celebrate French avant-garde painting and capture a who's who of the Impressionist, Post-Impressionist, and Early Modern movements. See paintings by pivotal artists like Picasso, Van Gogh, and Monet, who sparked the major art movements of the late 19th to early 20th century, in Monet to Picasso, a very private collection. Then step into Berta Morisot, Impressionist Original, to discover Berta Morisot's portraiture, her focus on the life of women in 19th century Paris, and her singular role as one of the founding members of the Impressionist group. On view through January 12th. Visit mfah.org slash impressionistautumn for more. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the Wex galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Robin O'Neill, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for being on. When was the last time I talked to you? On this show, I think it was six years ago. That's what I thought. We've done 415 shows now, and I think you were on number 80. Wow. So before we get to your skies and their influences and how you've spun away from those influences, I think we should establish a couple of the core elements of, of your practice. 
The most obvious one is your dedication to graphite and to drawing, and maybe you could detail for us how that became the central thing. I grew up as a painter. I always I taught I got taught at age five by my grandma to paint with oils, and that was very important to me. But I luckily had a professor when I was at University of Illinois, Chicago for a year. Terry, I love Terry's intros because she always mentions I did graduate studies, because that's the nice way to say it. I dropped out a year later. <laughs> uh, but while I was there, I went in making colorful paintings and large installations. And luckily for me, Susan Sensiman, an artist and professor, said just basically very bluntly, your paintings are not as good as your drawings. And I dare you to not pick up a paintbrush for the next six months and see what happens. And even though normally I don't like anybody to tell me what to do, this for some reason made immediate sense to me. And I did exactly as she said, and that's all I've done ever since. So I started, I also wanted to be removed from the regular studio building where all the other students were. As much as I liked a lot of them, I need to be far away from everything at all times. So I decided, well, this is easier to just carry my pencil around. And I started making very small drawings in my really small studio apartment. But at a certain moment, it made sense to me with the characters I was developing and the story. I'm, you know, I'm a narrative artist, or at least I was. And it made sense to continue to do this just with the pencil, because I also liked the absurdity involved in working with, I mean, I worked with a office supply store bought Pentel 0.5 mechanical pencil, and it just seemed like, I mean, I'm not a rebellious person at all, but you're taught to not use those pencils in art school. You're supposed to have the whole array of, you know, 8H to 8B or whatever they are. And I always was annoyed with that, even though I'm a real rule follower, but I was so pissed off anytime an art professor told me to do that. So that was my minor note of rebellion in my life, was I used a mechanical pencil. And it just seemed crazy, and I liked that about it. And I'm also just in love with works on paper and graphite, too. When I think of your dedication to medium, I think of John Marin who for, for years and years was dedicated to, to watercolors. He eventually tried oils, took him quite a while to figure out how to stop making bad oil paintings. But the big difference between his dedication to his medium and yours is you work at scale even in, within a medium that is traditionally not a medium of, of that scale. Was that something you got to because you thought, hmm, if I'm going to remain dedicated to a traditional medium that is two-dimensional but not painting, then I need to find a way to compete Absolutely. visually. Sorry to interrupt. Absolutely. I knew that was going to be a problem. I saw some of my small drawings for the first time installed together when I was still in Chicago before I moved back to Texas and dropped out of school. And I saw them at an art fair, and it sort of rocked my world in a bad way. I was like, mm. these look so forgettable, in my opinion. And I didn't want to be forgettable, and I knew I was doing something bigger than what they appeared to be when you just saw, you know, eight of them on a wall by themselves. It didn't quite do what I needed it to do. So I knew I had to scale up. And then, sadly for me, when I scaled up, it never occurred to me to scale up the size of the figures and trees. I just made a much larger drawing and kept everything <laughs> wait, small. Wait, really, my... or is that a line? No, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've never made, you know, they were this little on a tiny piece of paper, and they were this little and even smaller on a large, <laughs> but I really, truly never occurred to me like you were supposed to do that. 
<laughs> and so that made my life a nightmare, basically, from then on. It still is. <laughs> what, a, what of the things that scales you, allows you to do is to present land or landscape in a panoramic way? And then once you've got from scale to panorama, then inevitably you, there's room for skies. You know, there, there's, a, there's a rich panoramic painting tradition going back to the Dutch Golden Age, coming into America through, through Thomas Cole, really thriving in America through photography in the 50s and 60s when, when photographic panoramas were a big deal. Is there any part of the panorama lineage that's important to you? Not exactly, but the only thing that is about that is investigating those, especially the photographs, and focusing on the exact moment in a picture plane where the photographers choose to keep put the horizon line, because that's the big decision, right? Yeah. I was also taught by my drawing professor out in East Texas, Lee Baxter Davis. He would make us, this was just our training, he would make us make the same drawing but move the horizon line and try to try to see what it changes. If it's way up high, if it's way low, if it's dead center. And we, I just became focused on it. I don't think that was his intent. He was just trying to teach us what that does emotionally to a viewer's reading of your drawing or watercolor he taught us as well. But I wouldn't say the panoramic, that wasn't the biggest thing. It was just specifically horizon lines that I sort of focused on and started to play around with. And in the beginning of my work, you can really see it in this show. It starts yeah. where everything is mountainscapes really high, so the horizon line is up high, and there's almost nothing happening in the skies. And then it lowers and lowers and lowers. At some point, the snow just disappears, and it becomes sort of blank and pastoral and empty, and then eventually it all becomes water, and then the water rises, and then there becomes another hor high horizon line. So the horizon line becomes kind of an entity in itself in my work. And you, you've never been able to see it until this show happened, to see what I was doing with that, where it grew and receded and came back. And that's been really important to me, and especially the moments where it's almost all sky in a lot of my work. That's when I was also most comfortable. I liked setting a scene in the sky, if that makes sense. There are these polyptiches, you know, these multi-part individual works, three, mm -hmm. three sheets of paper, five. And one of the things I think that's interesting about this show here is you can see how you play with the horizon line within multiple pieces of paper within a single work. Was that intentional or did you just have to figure that out as once you decided to make a five-part work? Yeah, are you talking about how the frame intercepts the horizon and they kind of go or, off by or, an inch or so? Or how even in, in you know, the lost landscape after Friedrich, you, you choose to move things around a bit. Uh, yes, absolutely. The, the, where this comes from, too, was when I started to look at, I mean, the triptychs, were so based on pre-Renaissance and Renaissance Italian altarpiece paintings, and that's, that's another one of my big art obsessions. But in some of those, especially the more religious ones, you'll see multiple horizon lines in one image, yeah, and know. that became a complete obsession with me. I thought it was just crazy. Anytime I see a painting where there's one scene down here, uh, and then another horizon line here, and if there's a hell panel underneath, that became a very big deal to me. So that's why I started messing with that and wanted, and, and yeah, the multi-paneled drawing ended up being really good for that. And then I ended up doing it in some of the smaller pieces. There's multiple horizon lines yep. laid out there, too. I think there's a version of the lost landscape after Friedrich in which you 
take a quarter of the rainbow and move it off of the rainbow arc. Yeah, that's right. As a way I of do. playing with it. You gave a summary a moment ago of kind of your path through scale. Where in that path did skies become important? I think it was, weirdly, it was when I started to have the seascape being the most, it was when sea and water took over land. I think that's when it really became important because, oh, this is my chance to tell you. I don't know if you noticed, but I like how willing you are to give certain criticisms sometimes. And I want you (laughs) in a good way. That's what we love about you. But the earlier drawings, and you're seeing some of these flash up, so maybe the audience sees this, in my very early drawings where it's mountainscapes, those skies, I have them laid out on this slideshow, are terrible. When I look at them, I'm just like, I did not know how to draw clouds or sky. To me, they look so bad. And then somehow when I incorporated water, I don't know why, but the, the way I draw water essentially becomes a tiny, tiny miniaturized version of how I ended up drawing the sky. So you'll see a very strange formal consideration I was doing. And that's also the same thing when I draw a tree branch. It's the same exact pattern and technique. Mm. It's just turned a different way if the tree happens to be standing upright. And the cliffs are drawn exactly the same way too. If there's a mountainscape, the mountains are, it's all the exact same thing. It just depends on which way I've oriented that image. But when I drew the first one, which is masses and masses row of a darkened pool, that's a really large piece with all the water and all these little men on rafts. That took so long just to make that water and that became when I really wanted to like just really make these skies spectacular and actually you and I had a talk about gust of wind the Corbet piece at the MFA in Houston yeah and you noticed that I basically I, I stared at that painting when I lived in Houston for so long that it became a huge influence on me it's a very great painting it's a great painting <laughs> a and very, would you painting. say maybe one of the greatest skies in art history yes okay it's, good it's it's absolutely, <laughs> Good, or I'm leaving. It's, that oak tree is one of the best oak trees. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's Corbet looking at all the Barbizon painters going, oh, you and your little trees. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, I do that with skies with a lot of masters. I'm like, oh, nice try. I got this with my mechanical pencil. <laughs> and I do. I'm going to say it. I do. So when you started drawing skies, were you originally thinking got to be skies if there's going to be land, or are you thinking that there's going to be a conceptual reason and relationship both between the land and the sky, but also, and we'll talk about later on, climate change and your address of weather and and similar events? Yeah, you know what it was? It was, again, those early days of just seeing, even though I didn't figure out the sky for a while, I knew when I first saw those kind of eight small drawings, and I was mortified at how kind of non-impressive they looked. I realized also part of that was because, and these I'm glad these pieces are in the show, they're very important, but the ones where there's just little men and nothing else was just not okay with me. I, I mean, they're great because they developed this whole thing that I was trying to tell this story about these men and humanity. So very early on I realized the atmosphere needed to tell my viewers what mood I was inviting them into. It's not the, this is not the smartest answer, but this is the true answer. I needed to set a tone. And what better way to do that than to develop weather patterns in my drawing? So I thought mm. about it more as developing a weather pattern 
and wanting to figure out how I was going to get the emotive response I want. And what it did in the very beginning, when I wasn't quite as good at drawing skies, was it was that good counter to the men. The men were are purposefully drawn very goofy and very stupid looking. And then the skies, as I continued to try to develop those, they were supposed to counter that and show that I was, even though I'm drawing them technically very stupid, they are, that is all on purpose, and I take it very seriously, drawing them stupid. And the skies kind of, kind of tell that to my viewers, if that makes sense. I think we have one of your men in the audience. We did. Oh, did? You know what? The, he he uh, changed into a dress, oh. which I love. Into a skirt. Yeah. Somebody did draw like one. Of, I mean, dressed up like one of my men tonight, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, Amazing. yeah. So we'll come back to the men, and they're all men. They're all men. But let's talk about some art historical skies to which you paid attention. I've got a little list of names. I'm going to drop the name, and maybe you could say yes or no, or what you like about those skies. Quick takes. Friedrich. Oh, God. Love. Number one. Well, not number one sky. Number one painter. And I especially love, and it was very influential, like Monk by the Sea. That's almost all sky. And one Rukin figure man, meaning see him only from behind, and that enormous sky. Oh, my God. Nothing better, nothing better than that painting. So, yes, fully sign off on... Friedrich. Thomas Cole, Oxbow. I think you like him more than me, but mm -hmm. I definitely... Probably true. <laughs> I think you do, but definitely an influence, and come on. They're beautiful, so I do... That Oxbow them. sky is about, about the most amazing thing. There are two Brits from whom Cole substantially went to school. On whom? With whom? Yeah. You know, from whom he yeah. learned. Yes. Constable and Turner. Then how are you going to go wrong there, right? And Turner, number one. So the first person, there's a Turner that I put into this slide list for you. and It'll be on Man Podcast. It'll be on Man Podcast. That Turner, what's it, what's it called? You're always so good at knowing the titles. I don't remember. I don't either. But, there are uh, a lot of Turners. Snow, was it Snowstorm? <laughs> anyway. It's the big spiraling one. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And I saw that as a very young art student when I got to go learn art history in, in in London and it was up at the Tate and I saw it I went there almost every day I didn't know I mean I knew I was a weather watcher technically speaking I really was a volunteer weather watcher but I didn't know that that was going to be a big part of my work and my art but that thing ingrained it's that piece ingrained itself into my head in a big way next was the Corbet gust of wind but Turner is, to me, that's, he reigns supreme when it comes to skies. Well, like, like, like that Corbet, those are, that's like, it feels like a self-contained weather system that is in process. Yeah. As you arrive at the painting, it is in the process of moving across. Yeah, and um, they feel as, not, not dimension-wise, they feel as big as the sky. The way they paint them envelops you. I mean, it just does. Less skies than clouds, Marsden Hartley? Clouds, for sure. Storms, yeah. No, I love Marsden Hartley. And I'm just, yeah, we're talking about skies, but it's mainly clouds that I get the most into. Because he doesn't really do action in his skies, but his right. clouds are references to, he kind of mails, he's not mailing it in, but he's mailing it in. Yeah. That's not what he's most interested in. Exactly. Frederick Church, there's, uh, there's an Emerson line 
There's a line in Nature in which Emerson is talking about the times of day he likes, and he's talking about skies. And he says, not less excellent, except for our less susceptibility in the afternoon, was the charm last evening of a January sunset. The western clouds divided and subdivided themselves into pink flakes modulated with tints of unspeakable softness. And the air had so much life and sweetness that it was a pain to come within doors. And, you know, with the Katahdin painting or Twilight in the Wilderness. That is perfect. And I, sh yeah, I should read Emerson more on the podcast for sure. Because this is the type of thing, and I know you've maybe read a bit about what I'm working on with this next series, which I'm calling the Cloudmaker series, but really that may change. That's a working title. But where I'm collecting, I have been collecting since I was in high school, both poetry, skies, well, let me just say it this way, skies, clouds, any reference of storms from art history, but also literature, poetry, and shows as goofy as like Beverly Hills 90210, and films as amazing as Werner Herzog's The Enigma of Christopher Hauser. So how have you found churches' skies useful? Because they are so light and wispy and pink and peach, yeah. and yours are not. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a good point, I know. <laughs> but the clouds are really dramatic. And, They're very dramatic. And even though they are pink and way more beautiful in that way, where you really are just, I mean, it looks like heaven or something. It's so perfect. I think, I think they're darker than they seem, in my opinion. I think they're really crazy, and they are upsetting. Oh, they are crazy. Don't you think they're a little... I mean, they're, a little they're a little druggy. Yeah, they are. That's what I mean. And that one, what is the name of that one that has the flag, the American flag in the sky? Can't well, he, he did a couple. I mean, oh. he did that both as a chromolitho. He did a painting that's in, in Indianapolis called, you oh. know, Under the Flag, that's just a weird-looking mountain, like a very pyramidal mountain, and then has a flag on it. But these are all, of course, Civil War paintings. Yeah, and so it makes sense, but it really is a crazy decision at that time period for this man to paint the American flag in cloud form, basically above a landscape. The landscape is the American, great American cultural thing, and yeah. it is how artists and poets were expressing patriotism en masse in the late 1850s and 1860s. And the next to last one, and this, this is an artist who's going to come up again later, Hieronymus Bosch. Oh, yeah. So his skies are not like the weather, at least the skies I'm guessing we'll, we'll be talking about, are not like the pink fluffy of church or the weather system of Corbet. His are clouds that might as well be fire and, or, or smoke. They are, I mean, quite literally hellscapes. Bosch's skies of interest? Hugely of interest, especially, and you can see it in, in the earlier work of mine. I mean, I even totally ripped off one of those fiery skies in one piece called Oh, How the Heartless Haunt Us All. There's a hell panel on the bottom, and I tried to do my best with graphite making a version of the whole sky being in flames. He, was, he is more of an influence for the way I work my characters and my figures, I would say. So I don't look to, even though I do... I do really respond to that, and I think it became really important as I worked on my hell drawing, which is in the show too. But I would say I'm not as focused on his skies because that's not his focus either. It's just a. But he also. Do you think it is? I think sometimes, sure. Hmm. I mean, I think sometimes when he wants to make it obvious we're in hell. I mean, visually. Yeah. Yeah. That he really turns them up to eleven. That's true. I think it's a very similar, my guess is that what he's doing is very similar to what I told you I originally knew I had to do, which was make these, I sometimes call them backdrops actually on accident, 
my skies or my atmosphere, these backdrops have to, have to clue in the viewers to where we are. And that's the best way to do it, really. Yeah, that's how he, I mean. And that's yeah. exactly what he does. But yeah, I would say for Bosch, even though I love, I mean, there's nothing not to love about him, but I would say it's his figures that were the biggest influence on me. Well, we keep bringing up figures, so quick diversion into figures. Mm -hmm. First, why are they all men? Yeah, they're all men because I knew eventually I wanted to kill them all off. And <laughs> if I threw any women in there, it seems like humans, not me, but humans tend to procreate and have kids. And uh, I knew that would give these guys a chance for survival if there were women around and procreation and all that good stuff. And so I didn't want to allow for that. I knew they were all going to die. I, I also think about the work, because there's so much address of climate change in the work, and that who are the people in charge of the planet who have driven us into a ditch, whether at the corporate level or the political level, and that's been men. Is, or maybe did, did it become eventually at some point in the work that one of the reasons there were so many men, it was because that, that men are responsible for that problem? Uh, yes, it's always difficult. The beginning, it wasn't what I intended, and I drew these men after my dad, who I love a lot, and I do not blame for climate <laughs> issues or anything corrupt for that matter. But then they, once I multiplied these men by the thousands and started to use them as my archetype for humanity, they really did represent everything reprehensible about humanity. And it wasn't necessarily because they were men. It was just because those were my figures that I had already established. But yeah, certainly. And I had the most ominous experience with a lot of the timing of when these drawings are made and released into the world always relate politically. It's been very eerie. And so, you know, my last opening in Dallas was the day we all found out Trump was elected. And it was just a very weird thing because what I was working on had everything to do with me burying these men. These are in the, these are in <laughs> the show as well. Some of the most recent pieces where they're called suffocation studies. And I'm you know, killing these men again, even though I've killed them a million times in my drawings, I was really killing them around that time. So yeah, I can't deny that has something to do with men. <laughs> the men are off in their own little groups, often in twos, quite often in twos. Uh, why in those little groups, and where does Bosch come in to how you play with the little little lads. Yeah, little lads. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever called them. <laughs> well, I was real. So first of all, they're all dressed in black sweatsuits and Nike tennis shoes. And the, I didn't know it at the time. This is what all, often happens for artists is that I was just, I knew I wanted a way to unify them and make them all look the same, which I also thought would look kind of dumb. Like, you know, I've always had a problem with uniforms. I remember I had a job at DFW airport uh, when I was coming home from college for a summer. And I had to wear these uh, black, oh no, they were navy blue pantyhose and these navy blue pumps and with this navy blue skirt. I, my mom was dropping me off there, do you remember this? And I was a, I like would have a complete breakdown on the way over there. I was like, I can't believe I have to wear these clothes like every other person up there. It drove me crazy. So I always thought of like uniforms as these kind of annoying, I just hated uniforms for some reason. Now I like them. I have a, like a studio uniform that I wear, basically. <laughs> but I knew I was also very interested in cult behavior. And what I'm getting at is Heaven's Gate cult. That, when that happened, I paid a lot of attention to Heaven's Gate cult. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Heaven's Gate cult 
all wore black sweatsuits. Well, they were actually sometimes purple, but they wore black sweatsuits with Nike tennis shoes, and when they all committed mass suicide, they all had those on, and they were shrouded in these purple blankets when they died. And it didn't occur to me until later, about three years into making these men, drawing these men, that they were based on the Heaven's Gate cult. And the reason for that was I knew I, I thought people in groups have always kind of worried me. I'm very uncomfortable in crowds. And so it was just my natural way. If I wanted to create landscapes with men making me nervous, it would be men in groups making me nervous. Like this, and you'll see the kind of peace, most peaceful moments in these drawings are when guys are on their own. They end up like picking flowers and doing really innocent things when they're alone. But once they start pairing up, that's when the nightmare begins. So. so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 as, you, as you look at individual drawings, the men are doing, sometimes they're hugging, sometimes they're doing other things, sometimes they're throwing up. The, 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 that element of the narrative, are you looking at Bosch? Was that a point of origin, or was it a point of origin that eventually you found your way? It was from? a direct point of origin. For the first drawing I ever made that mm -hmm. I scaled up when I was at ArtPace, it's everything that stands, dot, 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 long, annoying title. That one was the first one that I, I went from eight and a half by 11 drawings to this huge 14 foot by eight foot or something like that. And it was completely based on Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. And the entire center, center panel and the center scene, instead of all of these figures going in a clockwise circle around a swimming hole where Bosch allows for his people to have, do fun things like have sex and frolic around and have a good time with life. Before they go to hell. That's true. But at least they get to have a little fun. Mine, I'm That's just... why they joking. go to hell. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> but my guys, they never get to have very much fun. And so I flipped it and I had them going in a counterclockwise circle. There it is. And they're, they're just running around doing... Uh, very non-fun. They're throwing up. I have a deep fear of throwing up. That's when that comes. That's why that comes up a lot. They're pushing each other over. They're, they're wrestling getting, in a couple of... They're yeah. wrestling. They're getting distracted by stupid things. But so that was... Maybe that center area is the only thing that really was directly Bosch influenced. But I just loved the idea of taking hum, human form to tell any story you wanted under the sun, which is what Bosch did. And that's what I really was trying to do all along with these men. I was like, I can use you, if I were to talk to them, I can use you for anything. It's sad that I mainly use them for bad things, but <laughs> that was what I was made, set out to do, so I had to or, do it. Or fun. You think, um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> the, or it's fun that you do that. My guest is Robin O'Neill. We'll be right back after a break. The de Young Museum in San Francisco presents the first exhibition in the continental United States by multidisciplinary artist Lisa Rehana. Titled In Pursuit of Venus Infected, it features a 70-foot-long video scroll depicting live-action vignettes juxtaposed with the historic French wallpaper on which it is based. Rehana's work will prompt you to ask yourself who controls the narrative of history and how do images shape our understanding of that narrative. See In Pursuit of Venus Infected now until January 5th. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, 
that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18th, 2019 through February 9th, 2020. And now back to my conversation with Robin O'Neill. You know, as I was thinking about skies in art history in preparing to talk to you, I came to realize that so many of the skies we've already talked about, what you might call narrative skies, because the skies tell the story that the rest of the painting fills in, are paintings without people in them. You know, there aren't people in that corvée, Augusta Wynn. There aren't people in Cole's oxbow, except for Cole hides himself in a corner those great constable oil sketches of clouds and, and, and the skies around them are just the clouds and the skies around them. Your most dramatic, biggest, most heavily graphited drawings of skies almost always have people in them. Or how have you thought about the relationship between what's happening in the skies and what, what the figures are doing, what the people are doing? That's a good point. I've never thought about it like that. And it almost makes me upset at myself because I, this is now you didn't know it would be, but it's a challenge because I really would love to tackle that and make the sky the most important and the, basically the figure for me. But you're right. I mean, these ones with all the rafts and all these hundreds of people, those are my biggest, most dramatic skies. I think the reason for that is, again, originally just trying to figure out a way to, con- well, first of all, the way- back to the way I draw the men. I draw them very goofily on purpose, and I draw nature very beautifully on purpose. And again, that's my take on how much I don't like human beings, <laughs> right? I love nature, and I love animals. I love clouds. I love skies. I don't really, and I'm throwing myself in this too, I don't really love me and all of us. I love all of you guys. I love a few of you a whole lot. Um, but anyway... So, being that that's the case, I knew that every time I do something like that, basically top off a drawing with a really glorious, well-cared-for sky by my hands, it's my testament to how much I respect the bigger world and nature and landscape. And, if, and even landscape painting, to be specific as well. All of, these, all of these artists you're mentioning and those specific pieces, those are my... Favorite, none of my favorite paintings in art history have human beings in them. I'm not, not one of them. If I were to list you oh, wow. my top 100 favorite paintings of all time, none of them would have. Well, except for Caspar David Friedrich's Monk by the Sea. Bosh. Yeah, Two. you're right. All right. And actually, there's probably like 30. Let's say, all right, 30 out of the 100 might have a figure in it. 
<laughs> but no, I would say top 10 are all, all nature, no humans. You talked a moment ago about how watery, watery grounds came in, mm -hmm. and there, would be, there, there was this tension between these rising waters, waves, however we want to describe them, and, and the skies. And I wanted to bring up a specific painting, 2007's The Ruin, which is at the Whitney and which is here in the show at the Modern. It features a, a roiling seascape in the, the, the bottom half of the painting and a branch hovering above that wave or that seascape with a smudged sky behind, beyond the branch. To me, it reads very much like a climate change drawing, mm -hmm. a, a very specific address. What did that drawing come out of, and how did you think about the relation between the water and the sky there? Yeah, you're, as usual, you, you are what we artists always want. I don't know if anyone's told you this. There's Michael Silverblatt, who does Bookworm on KCRW in L.A., and he's every contemporary writer's favorite reader. And you are every contemporary artist's favorite viewer. I really do think that. And Michael Thank Silverblatt's you. my other hero. So it's crazy that you were able to pick up on this. What it came from was right after the devastation in New Orleans after the hurricane. I was living in Houston at the time, and then we had Ike, and we, we were getting our hurricanes around that time too, not quite as devastating as New Orleans, but really bad, and you know, I lost a lot of things in that hurricane. Well, I was preparing for one, it comes from a kind of funny story about, not necessarily climate change, but extreme weather. So I was preparing for the hurricane by going to my local Kroger, and I was getting a lot of water and all this stuff, but when I walked in, they had, you know, hurricane preparedness signs, and, for, and they worked really hard on these with all the 10 things you should get, and they put an image at the top where they, they printed out a hurricane wave, but for some reason they were in a hurry or something, and they put the hurricane wave upside down, and it was so bizarre, they just accidentally did that. So it actually influenced first some drawings I have that are upside down hurricane waves. That was the more direct reference, but when I saw that, and I literally saw a, I normally don't use the word literally, but this is what I literally saw, was a branch flying by my studio window that doesn't look all that dissimilar from the drawing. That drawing that you're talking about looks like maybe most people would think it's surreal or that branch is hovering in the sky, but I... There's a little bit of K-Sage or a little bit of Dorothea Tanning, maybe? Yeah, Or absolutely. a little bit of Marsden Hartley Driftwood? Yeah, well, I A lot of Marsden A lot of Marsden Hartley. I have to go with that one for sure. Yeah, and I think people would see those, but this was just something I really did see during a really bad storm. And I grew up, you know, in Nebraska and North Texas. That's Tornado Alley, and I've lived through so many tornadoes, yeah. and then in Houston, so many hurricanes. It's been the th central theme of my life, is to be <coughs> surrounded by really bad weather. And I love it. But So the branch really came from an experience of me seeing a, a branch that looked just like that just go by my window. Is there a moment in the work where you go from addressing extreme weather to consciously, intentionally, specifically addressing climate change? Not intentionally. It happened really naturally for me, though. And it happened, I think, when I started to notice that all the snow had melted. I didn't mean for this to be addressing climate change, but it so clearly is, and obviously, and, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it is a huge concern of mine. And yeah, and I just noticed, like, where did, one day after two large drawings that didn't include mountains or snow and had only grassy landscapes, 
I thought it was a little odd. And, and deserts started to become apparent in my work. And sandier, more kind of craggy landscapes that looked like the earth was drying up showed up. And I was just, I was sort of taken aback by myself. This is like, so the story started to tell itself to me, which I know sounds a little bit cheesy, but it is true. And I took a moment after about two of the large drawings minus snow and minus cold and seeing how heat had come into play, which by the way, I hate heat anyway. So this is the whole reason I don't live in Texas anymore. I would be here if it weren't for the heat and humidity. But I love Texas and I, I love everything about it, but I had to move, I keep moving to colder climates because I hate it so much. But anyway, that's a side note. Anyway, but yeah, so it was, it was just kind of natural. I think I, you know, even though this is a world I've invented, I'm so connected to nature, you know, and I always have been, and this is what my work is about, but it, it, I'm embarrassed to say it wasn't intentional. It just kind of happened. But then when I brought in the waves and there's a tsunami taking over the earth, that's when I knew what I was doing. There's a drawing titled, Masses and Masses Rove a Darkened Pool, Never Is There Laughter on This Ship of Fools. It's from the Kemper Collection in Kansas City. Lots of your dudes on rafts, and it's impossible not to read it as addressing rising seas and responsibility therefore. Exactly. And it's both, it both comes from that. It also comes from, and you can see, you know, basically drawings surrounding that piece and right before it had icebergs in the, in the water. Those are gone. And it also directly references the way not only that we treat our world, but it, the, the title, Ship of Fools, originally is a medieval tale about what people who were deemed insane, they got sent off on decrepit rafts just to fend for themselves if you were, if you were crazy. So it's not only me addressing what we do to humans, and they're just left defenseless, but it is also exactly what you mentioned. And that was very purposeful. So yeah, the water, the, the water taking over land was when I wanted to directly address it without it being an accident anymore. In, in the ruin in particular, but also in some of those other works from the late aughts, it sometimes looks like you're trying to figure out how to balance a roiling body of water, kind of a tentacular sea, if you will, with, with the skies, which, with which you've obviously had so much fun for a decade already at that point. And in the ruin, the, the sky is barely there. Mm -hmm. Was there a process of figuring out how to have a lot of action in the bottom half, a lot of graphite, not, not action in terms of the dudes, but yeah. action in terms of the graphite and, and the skies? And what did you end up, how did you end up resolving that? It's hard every time, especially when you're just, this is one of the biggest challenges of working with just graphite. If that were a painting, imagine how easy that would have been. Yeah, Do you know? Yeah, not yeah. that it's easy to make a paint. You know what I mean, though. You, in other you words, play with for color values, or exactly, all kinds of yeah, just a color change. But with me being all graphite, I have to hold back on things I want to do in the sky. If that dominant, if there's a wave that's dominant, I have to be very, very, very gentle with what I use as a smudge stump. Uh, that my mom gave me when I was in seventh grade. Some people call them a tortillion, but they're, you know, rolled paper that you smudge graphite with. And I've had the same one since seventh grade. So it has, and I bring this up not to be cute, but it has 20, I don't remember, 28, I don't know how old I am, but like let's say almost 30 years of graphite patina on it that does a very specific thing for me that allows me to do exactly what you're noticing behind that roiling water there's a way I can be get very basically moody with it, but 
give the wave the dominance and push the sky into a bit of obscurity a bit, if that makes sense. But it takes a lot of planning in these composition notebooks of mine, which I've been using these since the beginning of me making work. And I do thumbnail after thumbnail after thumbnail until I figure it out. Even though they're really tiny, they're only like an inch by an inch. But even in the ruin, I figured it out that way. I have to be really careful because there's also no going back. If you're making drawings with graphite that, I mean, I push that stuff into the paper so hard when I'm working with the actual pencil. You can't well, You can really that. see on the surface, I should point out. We'll try to get some details for manpodcast.com. Mm -hmm. But you can see volume and muscle power there. And in some of the drawings, you can even see the weight a little bit of the graphic because it's 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 moving the paper if you will yeah it's really important to me and it's part of what you know i mean a jpeg can only do so much yeah. but i think you can get but i always want people i never even i don't i mean this is true of every artist to some extent but for me a lot of that sort of obsessive work that i do with that mechanical pencil it's necessary to see that in person you can't see it otherwise and you see those individual the sharpness of the mechanical pencil you see those little marks within something as large as one of those waves. And yeah, it's very important. But it is hard. It's very difficult to keep the sky and the landscape when it's that dark. It's hard to get, make sure they both have strong enough presence, basically, and don't go into each other. That, that branch in the ruin, there are throughout all of the work until maybe the mid-2010s or so, lots of naked trees, trees without leaves, branches without leaves, they're fantastic and they recur. There are art historical roots for them, maybe including Albert Bierstadt, who loved himself a dead tree. <laughs> where, where do they come from for you and why is it important that they're leafless and apparently inert? Yeah, well, Bierstadt is another hero. And I really, truly throughout my life, I remember I'd always like stop and see a tree and I'd say something to a friend or whatever, like, God, look at how amazing that tree is. And it never occurred to me that they were dead. People are always telling me the trees I like, they're like, that's a dead tree, Robin. Like having to inform me that I like a dead tree. I just love dead trees. <laughs> and again, it's just a focus. It's a symbol of my biggest focus, which is, I mean, I guess, wouldn't you say one of my biggest focuses is death? I mean, it's about death and destruction. And so... The dead trees definitely point in that direction for me. I mean, there are occasionally, in the Caspar David Friedrich lost landscape piece with a rainbow, it was really difficult for me to draw that beautiful, lively, alive tree. It didn't feel right to me because it's not one of the trees I would naturally have drawn. I only drew it because I was copying his painting. But it doesn't feel natural to me to draw. You do gust of wind, you don't do the oak tree. Nope, exactly. It's exactly right. It's not my thing. And I love tree stumps way more than even a dead tree. I mean, as dead as a tree can be. That's the next question. <laughs> the more I like, a lot of, a lot of tree trunks, there right? Are, there are a lot of tree stumps. Stumps, a lot of, that's what I meant. And they haven't been off. toppled, you know, kind of Salvador Rosa, early Frederick Church style. Yeah. They've been axed. They've been totally axed and violated in that way, yeah. Yeah, what can I say? I, 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 I love that. I just, I always want to do it. As all, they become a good table for other things if they're cut off like, like a that. buffalo. The buffalo is on one of them, a huge one. So is that a reference to America's mowing down of the continent? Yeah. My, and I grew up in a household very concerned with all of this stuff. So it's a big backdrop for me. My mom's been concerned with the environment as her number one 
cause as long as I can remember. And it's just natural to me to care that deeply about that and animal rights as well. And so that, that becomes, I think, very clear when you see my show as well. A lot of dead animals, though. I know. It's hard for me to kill off animals, but I, <laughs> but I have to in order to get the point across. Before, before we leave trees, there are all the, 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 the naked leafless trees, but there are also a whole lot of fir, big bushy fir trees, which you obviously have a lot of fun drawing. How are they different for you from the dead ones? Well, Why do they have to be there? Uh, guess what? I don't know if you saw this, but in the vitrine in my exhibit, I list... So there's a vitrine in the show that includes five or six of these very composition books open to various pages, and sometimes there are lists of questions you're asking yourself or forcing yourself to re-examine about the work. Sometimes it's a pasted-in uh, printout of, say, a Frederick Church oil sketch from the Cooper Hewitt, and, and so on. Yeah, and they're my big, this is my, my whole creative process exists here. And when I translate it from the composition book to the paper, that's just labor. I always tell people, I've already figured it out entirely. There's not a lot of improvisation going on with me. So, but to answer your question, the, yeah, the evergreen trees and the fir trees, they, you're right, I have a lot of fun drawing them. But at a certain point, you know, to be honest, they were just very natural. Oh, because I was drawing these men uh, skiing in the very beginning. So they ended up in the very early drawings where I was drawing these sweatsuit guys doing calisthenics and being health, like trying to get healthy, which is so dumb, but that's what I was doing. And so they were, if they're on a ski slope, you're going to see them with evergreen trees, right? But then I think you, I mean, you basically, I think you know the answer. I just liked drawing them. They're very fun to draw. The mechanical pencil does every single needle very well. And then at a certain point, which back to the vitrine in one of my composition books, you'll see I become very critical of them. They end yes. up, they're just very cute, and I don't like that. So I don't like them anymore. It's, a, it's like two or three long sentences kind of oh, lambasting yourself about, yeah. Oh, God, I really got mad at myself after a while. I was like, how many evergreen trees can I put in these drawings? I'm so sick. I was really, really bummed at myself about that. They're just too cute. They're very cute. But I, you know... I don't know, I mean, to me, now I draw them all the time, like as Christmas cards and stuff. I mean, they lend themselves very well to Christmas cards. They're important in these drawings. I, don't get me wrong. I don't mean, I love dissing my own work, if you can't tell. But that's because I'm always moving on. And in that same vitrine, I think you see what I can, again, I don't even say, like, what I like in my work after I say what I hate in my work. I say what I maybe can deal with in my work from here on out. I'm, I'm picturing Friedrich sketching spruce trees on Christmas cards in the 18th century, 19th, 19th century. <laughs> Let's hope he did. Uh, in the last few years, one of the ways some of the skies have changed is that sometimes there are men in profile in the skies in a drawing like these moments from 2016, not in the show. Why, how does the sky get made out of men's heads in profile? And what does that suggest about the work that then came next? Yeah, it started when I made my hell drawing. There were some sort of ghostly presences of heads throughout that piece that are very, very terrifying. And looking. not just in the sky, in the, in the in land. The, yeah, too. just like yeah. existing on that hellscape all over. So I think that's the first taste I got of that. Again, entirely drawn with this smudge stump my mom gave me in seventh grade. So they're not, I don't use the pencil at all. I just barely touch the paper with this smudge stump tool. And then... And then the men were truly gone, finally. I was trying to kill them all off for so long, and then I killed them off, and then I, I missed them, and so I put them in hell, and I dealt with them again. And then, then, then I was really done. But I wasn't done with human form, necessarily. I was just done with the sweatsuit guys. So 
this is me, what you're at. I, by the way, I do love that drawing. That's one of my, of all the drawings we've talked about, these. Of, the, of these moments. These the moments heads, with all those profiles or eight heads in the or sky. however many it is. Yeah. 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 Well, you know more about it than I, don't I remember, didn't even know I don't the remember title. how many, but yeah. <laughs> uh, that was me. Basically, you can look at it and now know that what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out how to bring humans back into the images into the drawings mm. and I have I still have no idea how to do that by the way is that why you've been I think looking at William Blake yeah totally yes exactly so what got you to Blake and why well it's this so, is in the most recent work last maybe 2018 2017 18 19 very recent yeah as soon as I got that big Toshin Blake book oh. which I mean that's not the reason but the reason I bought that and started to really look at him which it's because I had so many people my whole life, even in high school and college, tell me, oh, you're a big William Blake fan, aren't you? And I would always be embarrassed to say, I'm not at all. I, I didn't fall in love with that work for a long, long hmm. time. And I would always see people being really disappointed in me, much like when you found out I wasn't into Matisse. Do you remember that? Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I was like, no, I'm not that into William Blake. But you would think, based on all of my work, even pre these drawings, I looked like a William Blake fan, but I wasn't. I and, wouldn't have seen it that much until oh, the last wouldn't? couple of years. Oh, but the okay. last couple of years, it just bounces off the wall, right? It's so crazy. Yeah, you, but nobody else has figured that out except you. Once again, you're a, an amazing viewer. But yeah, he's a big deal to me now. A couple of the more recent drawings include within them Little Mirandi still lifes. Why? I felt I've always been... I just basically want to make a tablescape at some point. I started to think about how tablescapes can come into my landscapes and I haven't figured it out yet. So those are almost uh. notes to myself. Like, <laughs> don't forget about this. You love Mirandi. Please, please pay attention to this more. And, why and I've never done an interior in my entire life. I've never drawn an interior since I was in high school or something. So it's basically a note to myself. Must pay attention to soon kind of thing. Your mountains are really distinctive. I mean, there are a number of things that recur throughout the work that stay distinctive throughout and kind of don't change a lot yeah. throughout. And the mountains are one of those. Where, where do they come from and why don't they change? Because they're just made up. They're never based on any mountains from real life. I just make them up. So I think they're just... <laughs> oh, but I bet they have an artist. I think I would guess for... I, 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 they look very much to me like the Apennines and Dolomites of so many Renaissance distances, the backgrounds of Renaissance altarpieces and paintings. They must. If they're anything, they're, they're pre-Renaissance pre and Renaissance Italians, yeah, but that's yeah. the only thing I can really cite. But yeah, definitely not from any of my life or not from mountainscapes I've seen on earth or anything. They're just completely made up. And again, they're just a formal consideration. They really are my waves. Next time you look at them, they really are my waves, just tilted. You so often float elements in space, mm -hmm. a head, a branch, the way we discussed. Was there an origin of that move, art historical or otherwise? Uh, there's a shocking origin, Donald Batchelor. Mm. I loved, when I was about 19, I saw my first Donald Batchelor in an ad in Art Forum before I'd ever even gone to New York. I, I was looking at an art forum in my library at college, and it was one where the, there was a potato floating in the sky. And I was like, first of all, I love potatoes. Second of all, <laughs> this is the weirdest painting ever. And it was so sad. And everything Donald Batchelor has ever done is so sad. Even if it's an ice cream cone, they look very somber to me. 
So actually, all mm. of that, anything that's floating in my drawings comes directly from Donald Batchelor, who is one of my favorite huh. painters. And I, I actually got to see him talk in Houston once, and I asked, and everybody was talking, oh, I just love your ice cream cones, make me so happy, and all this stuff. And I, at the end, I was like, I'm sorry, I have to be the one person to say, your work really makes me sad. And he was quiet for about like one minute straight and said, you're the first person to ever tell me my work's sad and I've always thought it was sad. So I was really happy because I, I was really happy that he makes such sad work. <laughs> I really was. I was like, I'm glad to finally inform you that I see it. But no, I, I, I really give him 100% credit for why I float everything in the skies of my drawing. Quite closely related, men are often falling or have just fallen. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I, I didn't see these men as having a point of origin, really. I didn't see them as ever being five-year-olds or 17-year-olds. I saw them always existing exactly as they are. And I also know this story of, if people can look it up on the internet, Magonia, which was this weird French cult and sometime like 800 or something and they were these crazy people who are written about where they they claimed that they fell from a cloud that circumnavigated the sky and they came to earth and they started to do really bad things on earth and so it came from that so I was like this is kind of perfect these are a cult they did bad things they fell from the sky I love everything about this and Magnolia <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson when the frogs all fall, fall from the sky at the end of Magnolia that's all based, that's the whole reason that's called Magnolia is from Magonia. He was doing a lot of research on it. Um, and, I, and I am very into natural phenomena of, uh, you know, when sometimes in Australia or even Austin recently, you know, hundreds and hundreds of birds just fall in like one block area. This happens all over the country all the time. Red dirt falls from the sky in this one area in New Zealand all the time and nobody knows how. It's really cool. Yeah. Wow. This is just an obsession I have. Finally, near near the, the, the most recent work, you bring in color via oil stick. Why did you decide to bring in color, and then why did it go back out again? Oh, yeah. God, I knew that... I don't even know why I finally did a full drawing in color. I knew... You know what? I'll answer it in the most plain and most honest way. It was just time. It was necessary. I felt it was necessary. It was time. This image called for it. When I first drew the thumbnails for that piece, An Unkindness, it was all drawn like it was going to be, all those wolves were going to be drawn very realistically the way I draw animals with a graph, with my mechanical pencil. And at a certain point I looked at it and I saw color and I just, at a thumbnail, and then I redrew the thumbnails with full color and I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Is it going to be paint or what? And I just knew it was time. And it will be back. It's just that I'm, I, I will always do both now. I'm finally... Mm done with being so strict with myself, like graphite only, mechanical pencil only, it's pretty, it's getting pretty boring, let's face it, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on, let's <laughs> I don't do know something about that. Else. No, but yeah, it's time, and now I just feel much freer to do whatever I want, and also, I'm getting older, I can do whatever I want, do you know what I mean? And I don't have to worry about what people think, oh, I thought I was used to these sweatsuit guys, I used to be concerned about that, where people would be like, oh, they're going to be bored, there's no sweatsuit guys. Now I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to draw whatever I want. I like it. Robin O'Neill, thanks very much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.